chapter six, beginning in verse one, it says, then he went out from there and came to his own country and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue and many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit. Teaching. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus returns home and is rejected. And in one sense, it really is a chapter filled with opportunities. In the opening passage, it really is a lost opportunity that's swallowed by stubborn unbelief. It is a passage that begins with hostility and ends with a sense of helplessness. Hostile because the people of Nazareth resent the hometown boy who has such wisdom and such power. Helpless because their stubborn unbelief makes it difficult for Jesus to work. We've all heard the proverb that Familiarity breeds contempt. And in this opening passage, it seems to be true. As the chapter unfolds, Jesus will present several opportunities to know the servant in verses 1 through 6. The opportunity to share the word in verses 7 through 14. The opportunity to repent of sin in verses 14 through 29. The opportunity to show compassion in verses 30 through 44. The opportunity to grow in faith in verses 45 through 52. And then the chapter will close with the opportunity to receive the Lord's help in verse Verses 53 through 56. So the passage begins with the servant face to face with unbelief. And then we will explore the consequences of that stubborn unbelief. Again, it begins in the servant's hometown. Then he went out from there. That is, Jesus has now left Capernaum. Remember, he has crossed the lake. He's left Capernaum. And now he and the disciples are going to make the 20 plus mile trek over the mountain to his hometown of Nazareth. As a matter of fact, to this day, when you go to Israel and you go into Nazareth, there's a little sign that says, this is the birth, this is the hometown of Jesus. Clearly, he was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. 
I was born in New Orleans. Grew up in Southern California. Yeah, I'm not the most famous person from New Orleans. The most famous person from New Orleans is, is a little-known trumpeter named Louis Armstrong. But we were both born in two-room farmery. We both lived in the Ninth Ward. We grew up in the, the dark side of town. To this very day, Nazareth is somewhat of a small village and a despised place. As a matter of fact, in order to help you understand a little bit about Nazareth, it would be like New York and how New York feels about everybody else in the United States. Judah and Jerusalem were the place where it was happening. And so everywhere else was despised. The Galilee was really despised. And out of all of the villages in the Galilee, Nazareth was the most despised. As a matter of fact, some of you will remember in John's gospel when they begin to tell Jesus or they begin to tell Nathaniel about Jesus. Nathaniel comes out and he spits. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? How is it possible that in a world of social outcasts, the people of the village refuse to see the greatness of Jesus? We learn in this passage that Jesus comes to them in humility and grace, and yet even then they look down on him with derision. And so it says in verse 2, and when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? We have every reason to believe that Jesus grew up in the synagogue. The, the village is small. Almost certainly everyone knows everyone else and secrets are hard to conceal in small places. When we were very young, my family moved from New Orleans to Southern California to a little community called Hesperia. Hesperia in the Greek language means the cattle are dead. Right next to it was another little community called Apple Valley. At the time, it had less than 5,000 people, but there was a very famous person who lived there. And some of you are old enough to remember who he is. His name was Roy Rogers, and he was married to Dale Evans. And, and it was such a small community that you could see him on occasion. You would see him out and about. He would be in riding around. He would be at the bowling alley. He would be at the store. You could even go to church. One, one Sunday, I went to church, and I sat behind Roy. Roy Rogers. And when I saw him at the bowling alley, I worked up enough nerve to ask him for his autograph. This is before the other Mr. Rogers, you know, the one with the sweater. I said, Mr. Rogers, did I have your autograph? And he looked at me and he said, sure. He said, tell me your name. I said, Gino. He goes, dear Gino. And then he wrote, best wishes. Roy Rogers. And then he looked at me and he smiled and he goes, I'm going to sign for Trigger too. I go, okay. And then he goes, and Trigger. And with 
an almost unbelievable sorrow. He looked at me and he said, trigger's gone, you know. And I said, yes, sir, I, I know. In that small community, everyone would have known about Jesus. Remember, this is his second journey back to his hometown. The very first time he went back, he preached in the synagogue and they took him to the side of a hill and they almost pushed him over the side. But the crowd parted and he went through. This time they don't try to throw Jesus out. They just simply refuse to take him seriously. And so... It says, and when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished. The word is explesanto, imperfect. It means blown away. It means overwhelmed. And it's in the imperfect tense, which means it seems that they did it over and over again. But look what they were astonished at. Number one, his mighty works performed by his hands. The people had heard the rumor mill. It had already gone around. Jesus, Jesus, he's opened blind eyes and deaf ears. He has delivered demonic people. He's brought people back from the dead. There's something special. There's something incredible. There's something amazing about this particular person. And the second thing that they're astonished at, look what it says, his wonderful wisdom. Remember, this is a supernatural ability to take information and then apply it. And you would think, you would think, you would think that when you're impressed with the miracles of Jesus and you're impressed with the wisdom of Jesus, you're just one short step away from believing him to be the Lord and the Savior. And you would be wrong. They believe that there's something supernatural and they believe that there's something wise. But they're suspicious. They're skeptical. What are the sources of his supernatural power? And you'll remember the religious leaders have already intimated that these supernatural powers are not from God, but from Satan. Unbelievers are open to the miracle working Jesus, and some of them are even open to the wise Jesus. But once you begin to present the Jesus who is the Lord and the Savior from heaven, the Jesus who can forgive your sin and reconcile you to the Father, then people's hearts and minds begin to shut down. Look at the question. Where did this man get these things? There's no rabbinic school in Nazareth. Yet Jesus speaks with authority. Do you understand what they're asking? They're asking, what kind of credentials does this man have? Do you realize that both Bill Gates and Steve Jobs both dropped out of college? Do you think that people at Harvard, where Bill, where Bill Gates left, do you think the people at Harvard go, he's a loser, he dropped out? Do you think after the first billion or the second billion or the third billion started to roll in that people started to think, well, maybe he's not a loser after all? Do you think when you employ 1,000 or 10,000 or 20,000 people that there's some sort of legitimacy, there's some sort of authority that begins to take place? 
And look what it says in verse 3. It says, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters, plural, here with us? So they were offended at him. By the way, we see in the opening part of the passage, is this not the carpenter? When he was there the first time, they called him Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter. Here, Jesus is referred to as carpenter. The word is very interesting. It's the word tecton. And it originally meant someone who worked with wood or who fashioned things. But it really meant anyone who was an artisan or a craftsman. It could mean people who work with wood. It could mean people who work with stone. It could mean people who work with metal. As a matter of fact, our word technical comes from this. And so, again, for you computer geeks, Jesus was a techie. In the Roman Catholic and in the Orthodox traditions, Mary is seen as a perpetual virgin. And so verse 3 comes sometimes as a shock to those who grew up in a Roman Catholic tradition or an Orthodox tradition. And they're taught of the perpetual virginity of Mary. But here we see that he has a brother named James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And some Orthodox and Catholic apologists will tell you, well, these were really cousins. These are close relatives. But there's a very specific word in the Greek language for brother. It's adelphos, and depending on the context, it can mean a brother. It can mean a close relative. It can mean someone who shares the same faith, depending on the context. But here, the context seems to be blood brothers and sisters. There's another word in the Greek language for cousin, one that is not used here. You see... The point of the passage isn't to either support or deny the perpetual virginity of Mary. Really, the point of the passage is at the heart of the people's unbelief is the question of the authority, the origin and the identity of Jesus. That's really what's at risk here. Who is Jesus? And by the way, your answer to that question will form the basis of your belief or your unbelief. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 16, verse 8, when the Lord was speaking about his imminent crucifixion and resurrection, he talked about the Holy Spirit coming in John 16, 8. And he said, and when he that is the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin. Because they don't believe in me. At the top of the sin list that Jesus lists isn't murder and it isn't rape and it isn't kidnapping. It isn't greed or covetousness. At the top of the list is a refusal to embrace him. In Aesop's fables, there's a story of a fox and a lion. There once was a fox who had never seen a lion. Upon his first encounter with the lion, the fox cried out in terror, and having never seen so fierce a creature, ran away. And the second time their paths crossed, the fox trembled and then went in the opposite direction. On the third occasion, the fox approached the lion and engaged him in casual conversation. That's the end of the story. 
Aesop says, of course, and the moral is. Familiarity does sometimes breed contempt. Acquaintance with evil can blind us to its dangers. But sometimes acquaintance with the good, you refuse to see just how good it is. I grew up in a world where we used to sing lots of songs. They paved paradise and put up a parking lot with a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot. On and on we seem to go. But it does. But we don't know what we've got till it's gone. You guys know the rest of the song. They paved paradise and they put up a parking lot. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. They grew up in a world where there's Jesus. And you may have grown up in that same world. You may have even wondered, I wonder what my life would have been like if I would have been born in Tehran or if I would have been born in Mecca or Medina or if I had been born in Mumbai or if I had been born in in Hong Kong. What would have my life been like if I had grown up in a secular society or an atheistic society or a Buddhist or a Muslim society? The people reject Jesus, and in spite of his wonderful words, in spite of his wonderful works, in spite of his wonderful wisdom, their contempt is based on his origin. He's from Nazareth. And his occupation. He's a carpenter. We're constantly at risk. We're constantly tempted to judge people based on the external circumstances. Look at what they're thinking Well, his family origin, his economic circumstances, their contempt for Jesus. I need you to understand this. Their contempt for Jesus is really a contempt for themselves. Hey, it's not like you're from Jerusalem. It's not like you're from Rome. Who do you think you are? He's common like us. He's simple like us. He talks like us. As a matter of fact, my donkey still carries the yoke that Jesus made. The door in my house is the very door that Jesus planed. The plow, the oxen drags through the field. Jesus made it. You know what it would be like in our culture and society? Imagine you grew up in a tiny town and there's that guy who works at the Chevron station and he pumps gas. Really? He pumps gas and now he is the ruler of the universe? How do you you go from there to there? They couldn't conceive of a more ordinary Jesus growing up in a more ordinary community. Jesus made it a point to engage a common life and perform what looked like ordinary tasks. They could not fathom that such a noble task of redemption and reconciliation of humanity would fall to someone of such an ordinary pedigree. Charles Ashcroft has written, quote, perhaps the greatest sin one person can exert against another is contempt. To exercise contempt is to invite contempt. Any person who looks with contempt upon another sets in motion an evil force which rarely stops. Do you want to really dismiss someone 
Don't reason with them. Don't argue with them. Don't even be angry with them. Look at them and laugh out loud. There's nothing more humiliating. There's nothing more derisive. And so the pattern for unbelief begins to emerge. Unbelief begins with the rejection of Jesus. Not his wisdom or his works, but his mission. They reject his divine task. The Redeemer was sent by God to the unbeliever. Jesus is an interesting carpenter from an obscure village, but he's nothing more than that. In the 1980s, Bob Bennett used to sing a song. The title of the song was, Do You Think He's Just a Carpenter Gone Bad? If God became a man, if God became a man and lived among us in the world, would you expect to find him in a pile of sawdust and wood shavings? But here he is. Born under unusual circumstances. Fulfilling more than a hundred plus prophecies. And then he says the most wonderful things that have ever been said. And he does the most wonderful things that have ever been done. The people in the village reject his divine identity. To the people in the village, it's maybe difficult for you to comprehend. But when they refer to him as Jesus, the son of Mary, it is insulting. You do not refer to an adult male in the Jewish culture. When you refer to him, you refer to him as the the son of his father. Even if his father is dead. To refer to him as the son of Mary is to imply, and this implication is going to blow up into a full-blown accusation that perhaps Mary became impregnated by some foreign occupier. As a matter of fact, the religious leaders will later accuse Jesus of having an unknown paternity. And it's already circulating. The strange circumstances of his birth. How could we possibly believe you? Look at your birth certificate. Look what it says under father. Unknown. It's a slur. And notice the phrase. So they were offended by him. That one expression, they were offended by him, is a single Greek word, eskandalizonto, imperfect. It means they refuse to accept his credentials or his legitimacy. Here's the idea. They refused over and over and over to accept him as legitimate. The word offended means to trip over. It means to stumble. It means to put something specifically in the task for the purpose of of tripping someone up. The excellent Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest writes, quote, They could not explain him, so they rejected him, unquote. He goes on to suggest maybe the saddest thing of all. That he's not just simply rejected by the people that he grew up with, but he's rejected by the people who are closest to him. 
his immediate family. And so now we see the results of that unbelief. Look at verse 4. It says, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor. Except in his own country. Among his own relatives. And in his own house. John reports a similar comment in John chapter 4, verse 44. There's a reason why this proverb was so important. A prophet is not without honor because the prophet's job was to speak for God and to speak the truth. And if you're speaking for God, you'd better be speaking the truth. And there's honor associated with speaking for God. There's honor associated with speaking the truth and make no mistake about it in the statement Jesus is claiming to be a prophet he's claiming at least that he's claiming at least that familiarity can be a double-edged sword Except in his own country. You know, he's making reference to the reality of the prophets who wrote the Old Testament. Was Isaiah accepted or rejected? Rejected. Was Jeremiah accepted or rejected? Rejected. Ezekiel accepted or rejected? Rejected. No wonder Stephen in the book of Acts would say, which of the prophets did you accept and embrace? Who didn't you refuse? And he's rejected. And look what it says in verse 5. Now he, that is Jesus, could do no mighty work except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. The people were largely skeptical and unbelieving. As a matter of fact, the Greek language, I'm going to suggest to you in, in, in verse 5, it says, Now he could do no mighty work there, could just as reasonably be translated, Now he would do no mighty work there. Why? Mark writes, except that he laid hands on a few sick. This doesn't mean that the power of Jesus was lacking or that Jesus refuses to do something because all of a sudden unbelief is like some magic hindrance to the power of God. That isn't what Mark is saying. Mark's point isn't to limit the power of Jesus, but rather to remind us that Jesus isn't going to force himself on anyone. It should shock you every single day that Jesus won't command Demand and manipulate affection. I know that some of you wish that he, that he would. You wish that all of a sudden in, a, in some sort of bright light, Jesus would show up and go, dude, it's me. Finally, finally you show up and, and provide proof beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are real and that you exist. The truth Jesus isn't going to command, demand, or manipulate you into affection and confidence. This might come as a shock to you, but there's a reason why God sovereignly gave you the ability to choose or to choose otherwise. He sovereignly gave you the ability to choose and choose otherwise so that you would voluntarily, personally, in a heartfelt way, submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus will not force himself on you. He will not manipulate you. And in verse 6, look what it says. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went out about the villages in a circuit teaching. I got to tell you something. This word and this expression completely took me by surprise. The word marveled appears 46 times in the Greek New Testament. Depending on the context, it means to be blown away. It means to wonder. It can mean to admire. Only twice in the New Testament does it refer to Jesus. Only twice in the New Testament is Jesus blown away, surprised by anything. The first is by the Roman centurion. Some of you are familiar with the story. A Roman centurion, he is a Gentile. He comes to Jesus. He prostrates himself. A Roman kneeling to a peasant Jew is a picture that is unbelievable. He explains to him that his servant is not well. And he he asks Jesus to heal him. And Jesus says, let's go. And he goes, no, sir, no, sir. No, sir. Your servant is unworthy of your presence. I am unworthy of any attention. He says, I'm a Roman soldier. I'm a man in authority and I'm a man under authority. You are a man in authority and you can just simply say the word. All you have to do is to just simply want it to happen and it will happen. And he marvels. He marvels because religious Jews, observant Jews who know the Bible, refuse Jesus. But here is this Gentile who gets it. He is blown away at his faith. And he is absolutely blown away. By their unbelief. Jesus is amazed. He's grown up in this region. Jesus did most of his miracles in the Galilee. He spoke his gracious words in the Galilee. He came into his own, but his own refused him. And the Bible uses the word marvel. You would think that the Bible would use the word angry. Or grieved. If I was the second person of the Trinity, I would go, hey, you know what? You're all eggplant. (laughs) And there you are, little eggplant. And then I would chop you up and soak you in a little salt water and bread you with some flour and some egg and some oregano and some Italian herbs and spice. Put a little Parmesan on top of you and then eat you. Can you imagine if Jesus did something like that? Hey, you're all a bunch of eggplants. And then he turns you back into a human being. Do you think at that point you would go, okay, I'm going to hold, I'm going to reconsider this whole messianic thing. I'm ready to visit the claims of the reality that you are, who you say that you are. But guess what? Jesus isn't going to manipulate you and compel you into something that your heart is unwilling to do. And what does Jesus marvel at? 
It isn't at their sin and it isn't at their blasphemy and it isn't at their profligacy, but it is at their unbelief. J.G. Miller writes, such unbelief as this has immense consequences for evil. It closes the channel of grace and mercy so that only a trickle gets through to human lives in need. You know what it's like? Imagine you love Mexican food, chicharron especially. This is deep fried pork. And all of a sudden the platelets begin to accumulate in your aorta. And all of a sudden there's this fatty buildup in a small, small, narrow, narrow passage that leads to your heart begins to close. So that only one little red blood vessel at a time can get through. And your heart needs to be oxygenated. But chicharron is so delicious. And you supernaturally and spiritually need faith. But unbelief and self-sufficiency seems to suit you just fine. Jesus doesn't marvel at the disease, but at their refusal to accept the position. Jesus doesn't marvel that humanity is lost, but that they refuse to be saved. And we should be amazed at the unbelief of the poor sinner. Why? Because it's so unreasonable. Jesus has done everything. He's done everything possible to break down the barriers and give even the most enthusiastic skeptic the full evidence of his identity and mission and the truthfulness of his words. If, if God did become a man, wouldn't you expect him to be born under unusual circumstances? Wouldn't you expect him to say unbelievable things? Wouldn't you expect him to do unbelievable things? Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist in a documentary with Ben Stein, was asked, what if you're wrong? Ben Stein basically said to Richard Dawkins, just play along for just a minute. Just play along for just a minute. Imagine you, Richard Dawkins, you die. You stand before the true and the living God. And he says to you, why didn't you believe me? What are you going to say? This PhD from Oxford, arguably one of the smartest men in the world, replied, Why didn't you give me more evidence? Really? More evidence? Didn't you ever... Consider the fact that there's something rather than nothing. Yeah, I, I thought it was the Big Bang. Well, didn't you consider how inorganic material became organic? Yeah, I thought that uh, electricity crawled on the surface of, of a cell and all of a sudden it became alive. Really? Then how do you explain how something organic and unconscious becomes conscious and self-aware and moral. I, I never got past that one. I never was able to figure that one out. Dawkins said, Why didn't you make yourself known to me? But that's exactly what God did in Jesus. That's exactly what God did in Jesus. The, the astronomer Galileo famously said, 
I don't feel obligated to believe that the same God who has endowed us with a sense and a reason and the intellect has intended us to forego this use. That's the matter. C.S. Lewis added, there is difficulty about disagreeing with God. He is the source from which all your reasoning powers come. It's God who gave you the ability even to sit, to think, and argue, and say no. It's only because our government forbids it that your parents were right when they said, I brought you into this world and I can. Yeah. Don't you thank God for a constitution? No wonder Luther said reason is the greatest enemy faith has. It never comes to the aid of spiritual things, but more frequently than not struggles against the divine word, treating with contempt all that emanates from God. And that's exactly what they did. They treated Jesus with contempt. Blaise Pascal wrote, quote, the ultimate purpose of reason is to bring us to the place where we can see that there is a limit to reason. Their unbelief was unkind. Jesus was with them and among them and he loved them and he yearned for them and he extended the invitation repeatedly to them. But most of the people refused to believe he healed their sick. Won't believe. Raise their dead. Won't believe. Give sight to the blind. Still no belief. Feeds the hungry. Refuse to believe. How do you deal with this? Their wicked unbelief was unreasonable. It was unkind. And it was sinful. Many people treated the miracles of Jesus as manipulative tricks or worse in league with the devil. Many people treated the words of Jesus as lies and that he was an imposter. Do you know why? Because that's exactly what unbelief will do. It will feed your selfishness. It will feed your sin. It will feed your sense of independence. And they gained nothing from this. That's what unbelief does, by the way. Their wicked unbelief is unreasonable. It is unkind. It is sinful. And guess what else it is? It is unprofitable. Imagine... You have a child. And you say, which one of these two things do you want? Do you want this $25 gift certificate to Toys R Us? Or do you want this 25-pound brick of solid gold? I know what some of you are can't take the gold. Take the gold. Take the gold. Take the gold. And the kid goes for the Toys R Us gift certificate. You go, oh! That's exactly what it's like for the person who refuses Jesus. Unbelief is dangerous. It takes you away from peace. It sets aside love. It makes you miserable here. And then it makes reservations for judgment later. Unbelief throws away heaven and hoards hell right here. Hell 
becomes the deliberate choice of the unbeliever. Judgment becomes the deliberate choice of the unbeliever. And unbelief is willful. The people of Nazareth made a deliberate decision to reject Jesus and the claims of Jesus. They did it freely. They made a choice. No one compelled them. Jesus didn't strong arm their affection. Sinner, Jesus marvels at your persistent, unreasonable, unkind, sinful, unprofitable, dangerous, willful unbelief. Jesus marvels how you would prefer hell over heaven and the world over eternal life. And he marvels how you could possibly embrace guilt over forgiveness. How you could possibly retain fear instead of love. And backslider, Jesus marvels at your unbelief. Because backslider at the very heart and at the very core of backsliding is an evil heart of unbelief which refuses to say that what God says is true. An anxious soul, Jesus marvels at your unbelief. It is your unbelief that keeps you from finding peace and joy. And what reason will you give Jesus to continue in your unbelief? What sorry rationalization are you ready to give him this time? What? What? You found one more excuse not to trust him? One more excuse not to believe him? Has God worked in your life? In, in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus rises from the dead, in verse 25, people are running away from Jerusalem. They're leaving Jerusalem, the place where the miracle has taken place. And on the road to Emmaus, he, Jesus runs across a couple of guys. And he says, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. How could you? How could you just simply dismiss everything that the Bible says? Unbelief hinders God's power. Unbelief robs the church of power. At the heart of unbelief is a heart that refuses to accept God's will and the glorious position, provision of His grace and mercy and power. Unbelief is not a negative power that neutralizes the power of God. It's a plea of rejection. It's a refusal to be open to the working of God. And for Jesus to act under those circumstances would have only reinforced the people in their unbelief. Kent Hughes makes these excellent comments on this portion of Scripture. He says, quote, let me make it clear. Jesus could not do miracles because he would not. Omnipotence is not omnipotence if it's bound by anything but its own will. Jesus was morally compelled not to show his power. Matthew makes it clear in Matthew 13, 58. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Unbelief freezes the power for God to act. No wonder in Hebrews eleven six it says, But without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So unbelief is an offense. Not just simply against reason. Unbelief is an offense against grace. 
Jabez Bunting in the 1700s wrote, quote, as to all instances of unbelief, go direct to God, pray against your unbelief, beseech him to cure you of this dreadful infatuation and let the disciples of Jesus, let those who are set to guide souls to Christ, let all the church say, Lord, increase our faith. Do you know what that means? It means believing that what Jesus says is true. A.W. Pink wrote, quote, None but the Lord himself can afford us any help from the awful workings of unbelief, doubting, carnal fears and murmurings. Thank God one day we will be done forever with unbelief, unquote. Opportunity is seldom labeled opportunity. It usually doesn't just show up and say, this is an opportunity, but this is exactly what the people of Nazareth embraced, an opportunity, an opportunity to hear, understand. Can you imagine the ability not just simply to hear the wonderful words of Jesus or experience the miracles of Jesus, but believe the most important thing of all, that your sins can be forgiven. It was Alexander Graham Bell who wrote, quote, when one door closes, another opens. But we so often look so long and so regretfully upon the closed door that we do not see the one that is open right before us. And when the door closes on unbelief, it opens to faith and belief. And the invitation is extended. Won't you trust me? Won't you believe me? What are you willing to accept as evidence that Jesus Christ is the Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for each person who's listening to the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray particularly for the empty person and the guilty person and the person who, whose heart is filled with skepticism. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would reach down into their heart and that you would extend an invitation to believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That because he rose from the dead, that he can forgive sin and reconcile sinners. Heavenly Father, I know that there are those people who think that ignorance is what plagues mankind. And if they just have the right wisdom, if they just have the right words, then they'll be fine. And Lord, they're unwilling to come to grips that it's their sin that has separated them from you and that you've made a provision, a wonderful provision, an awesome provision, an eternal provision in the person of Jesus. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that they would pray a simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I need a Savior. I know that my sins have aggravated, alienated, antagonized and separated me from you. And that Jesus Christ 
came to be that perfect Savior. To die on the cross for my sin. To be the satisfying solution to my rebellion. And that, Lord, you want to change me from the inside out. Make me new. Give me hope. Lord, we know that the door opens and the door closes. The invitation is extended and the invitation is rescinded. Lord, we know that no one comes to you unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would extend that invitation, that people would hear it, respond and believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.